We're going to jump right in here. We're going to pick back up our study of Philippians. I love this particular passage. I think it's so critically important. And if you are in a place where you're kind of exploring maybe a deeper or, or and repeat this and then join a church, which again, we've all been on that journey. I have too. I'm not condemning it. I'm just not spending a lot of time affirming it this morning because I don't think that's the only way to think about the salvation experience. And I think that what Paul does here in this section models very powerfully for us a way we might consider rethinking about our own testimony, our own narrative, like using Paul's narrative as a template. Instead of just as an experiment, not forever, but take aside your four spiritual laws or your steps to peace with God or your seven, you know, ladders of ascension to Jesus or your two points for whatever your whatever your salvation pitch was. Set it aside for a second. Look at what Paul does here. Use Paul's model as a template and retell your experience of Jesus using Paul's template. Even if that's just for yourself, it is a very helpful exercise because we've been rehearsed in a model of salvation testimony that's relatively new. We talk in ways other Christians didn't talk before, say, 100 years ago. At the evangelical movement, we have our own specific way of talking about salvation. We have specific emphasis that we enjoy over the others. And we have certain, we have particular points of judgment over other Christian traditions. But remember, that's all relatively new. And so going back to how the biblical writers talk about the experience of salvation and then at least being intellectually honest and saying, to the extent that my evangelical model doesn't mirror this, I'm going to give myself permission to kind of open up my hands and maybe even blow out of my hand if I need to. Because we want to align ourselves with what's revealed in the scripture. And so Paul does a very powerful job. And here's what's great. He also models what we do when people don't, don't agree with us. Because the end of that, he says, look, if you don't agree, that's okay. God's going to work on you. And when you mature, you'll agree with me. Say that to your spouse the next time you're in an argument. And just, you just say, hey, I'm just quoting the apostle Paul. Uh, so let's, let's read these few verses in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I've already re reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Now, one of the things that's important when we're reading a translation of the scripture, which we all probably most of us have to do because we don't know um, Greek and Hebrew, uh, is that sometimes we can have different nuances. I don't think that Paul's being a smart aleck with that last statement. I think what he's saying is, I'm patient because if you're not there yet, it's okay. God will awaken these desires in you and he will bring you to maturity. And as you do, what I'm saying to you might not seem as difficult to grasp. It might not seem as offensive. You may live into an understanding that I'm already in and I'm okay to be patient with that. 
Would that all of us, 50 and above, would adopt that same attitude when we're working with younger generations and that we see ourselves as responsible for stewarding this gospel message to the generations that are coming up. And we can say, we, we can mentor, we can teach, but we don't have to judge, reject, or get angry. Just rest, share your story, and trust that the Holy Spirit will awaken in them the maturity when the time is right which is what Paul models here. So he says these basically two overarching themes here. Uh, he says that here's the one thing I do, and he says it in two actions. I forget what lies behind. In other words, Paul has learned the power of being able to surrender. And as we're going to see, the surrendering that Paul is called to isn't his sin, He's called to surrender his religious, former religious experience in light of new revelation. Now, although our experience won't be the same in Paul, Paul has told us to model our lives after his example. And so some of us this morning may be confronted with maybe an invitation that it's time to let go a former religious experience in light of a fresh revelation of Jesus. Because that's exactly what happened to Paul. When he says forgetting what's behind, he's not talking about back when he was a mafia don and running heroin. He is talking about the success he achieved as a really good Jewish leader. And he had, so he's learned, you can't, I can't define myself even by what is good in my past. I have to let that go. And at the same time, as I forget what lies behind, I also reach forward to what is ahead. So these two are very elementary skills that we have to develop if we want to grow into maturity. We have to learn the skill of surrender and setting our intention. And it doesn't work to learn half of that. What Paul says, I surrender what's behind and I set my attention for what's in front of us. Even if we happen to get, which most Christians don't even get to the point where they actually finally let go what's behind. But even if we do get to that point, how many of us then recognize that we're liberated to set our attention for what's moving forward? And this is supposed to become the atmosphere that directs the culture of our lives and the culture of our home and the culture of those things that we are called to do so let's look at this first idea forgetting what is behind now given the current context Paul might mean this universally or specifically but I think it means he means it in both ways because if you look at the context of the letter thus far Paul's been being universal in his principles that he teaches about the gospel but then Paul comes in and says I'm going to use my biography as an example and as a model of what it looks like to encounter this gospel and be altered by it and so Paul models that so I think he's meaning it both he's making a universal and a specific statement universally what is behind him well what's behind him and what's at issue here in this letter to the Philippians particularly in this current conversation is a religious experience directed by the laws of Moses that's what's behind him now we won't spend a lot of time on this but for just a few minutes maybe two let's kind of put our thinking caps on and dive into here because this is where you see the relevance of reading the story as uh, his story, their story, our story, my story. Because a lot of mistakes happen because evangelicals 
read scriptures that weren't written to evangelicals and immediately read them as my story, this is a mistake. We will misread the scripture if we think they were written to modern day evangelicals with all of our theological concerns. They're not written to that situation. They are written a situation that has happened 2,000 years past us and as you're gonna see, the situation Paul's dealing with is something that's never gonna arise again in the history of the church. It was unique to that time. But that doesn't mean there aren't principles in how they wrestled through that that we then can take as wisdom instruction for our lives today. This is one of those. What is happening here with Paul, with the tension of the New Testament, is this former world of the Old Covenant that has been fulfilled and is now for them in the process of going away to make way for the new. Paul and the Philippians are living in the now and not yet of the New Covenant age. Now that's really important because if we don't recognize that what was for future for them is past for us, then we do what evangelicals have always done. We will read all the future references as though they're referring to our future. But we have to remember it's referring to their future. So what's going on in the scripture, in the story of the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, is you're seeing a transition, what we might call the now and not yet. They are living in a time when the old covenant age is coming to an end because it's been fulfilled in Christ, and they're coming to understand what it means to be, to be living in the dawn of the new age, and the new age of the new covenant, and they're trying to make sense of this tension, and so there is tension there, but this is why we want to read it as their story than our story because there's a lot of warnings in the new testament that this thing is going to be wrapping up soon right i mean i don't want to correct god's grammar but i don't think any of us think soon means 2000 plus years so what do you do with all these soon passages a couple of things you can do clever grammatical gymnastics and somehow force the word soon to mean 2,000 plus years. And a lot of folks have done that. If that speaks to you, if that's meaningful for you, ignore any alternatives if it's agitating to you. But if it doesn't, and you're looking for another way to possibly understand that, there are other ways that Christians have understood this. One being the soon thing that's coming to an end is the closing out of the Old Covenant, which will be dramatically symbolized in 70 AD when Jerusalem is sacked and the temple is razed to the ground. And Jesus spends an awful lot of time in Matthew 24 trying to prepare them for that event that's going to soon be happening. But there's a date attached to it on this end of things, folks. That was 70 AD. That happened in our past, even though it was their future. Does that make sense? So it's important for us to understand that tension. That's why when you go to Acts chapter 15 and they're trying to go, okay, do Gentile Christians need to stop eating the blood in their food and they need to start getting circumcised and so forth? That's what's going on. We will never ever have a discussion quite like that one because they are living in the now and not yet of the obsolete passing away because of the fulfillment of the old covenant giving way to this new. And so that's the situation they're in. So part of what Paul is trying to say is you You've got to let that go away and you've got to focus on this new thing that has come in the work and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Messiah. So he's wrestling with that, but then he's saying, but look at me because I'm a perfect example because I did that old way better than all of y'all. 
I was an expert of that former way. I was an expert of controlling my life and responding to the external expectations of the laws of Moses. And yet I myself has had to have to learn to let that go. Which is interesting because most of our testimonies are about how we let go of our sin. I rarely hear testimonies about how we had to let go of our religion in order to embrace Jesus. But that's exactly what Paul says. I was successful in that gig and God blessed me in it. But when I had a revelation of Jesus, I had to let all the success that I built into my former way of life go. It could no longer be the thing that defined me. So we see here that Paul is allowing his past life to define correction. Paul is not allowing his past life to define his present reality. So what is he letting go? Sin? Inevitably, there's been sin in Paul's path, past. But if we look at the context of what Paul's doing, that's not what he's emphasizing. He had to let go of all that he worked for and accomplished in his identity as a Hebrew Pharisee. Now, this is very important because if we don't recognize, so what Paul's doing is not just good theology, he's doing good psychology. And if we don't understand how our false ego self develops, we don't understand the self we're called to deny. Because Jesus says, there's a self you're called to die to, and then there's a self you're called to love. Remember, love your neighbor as your. So there is a self to die to, and there is a self to love. And I don't think that we have enough conversation about the distinction between those two. But we see that here, right here in Paul. What I want to take a moment to do, and I'll be honest with you. When I looked at the sermon again this morning, I said, uh-oh. This might, in fact, be two sermons. So, if we don't get through it, I am honoring your time and my belly and we will end on time and we'll pick it up next week. So just, I want to give you that headway, but who knows, maybe I'll talk so fast you'll think I'm speaking in tongues and we'll get through it all. Um, but when I wrote the sermon, I was moved by this, but then when I took time, my extra time to pray and meditate and read back over it, the spirit yanked my heart and gave me an emphasis that I didn't have when I first wrote the sermon. So at the end of the day, I'm going to do what all squirrely preachers do and blame it on God or the spirit. So what's important here is we have to understand what Paul is modeling. How is this false self developed? And we have to understand that is a unique journey for every single one of us. The false self or the ego, whatever language we want to use, or the self that is supposed to be denied, or the self that you take up your cross so that you can die daily, what is that self and how is it different from the renewed Christian identity? The key thing is this. That self is dictated by a reality called performance-based acceptance. The reason why you need to be aware of it is this. Performance-based acceptance is a reality and a necessity in the structures of men, in the way we govern, organize, and dictate healthy society. Of course, performance-based acceptance, you can't get away from it. The problem is when we bring that orientation into our understanding of our life in God. You have to understand that the first thing that you have to surrender is your commitment to performance-based acceptance and instead learn to embrace grace-based acceptance. 
because that's how God relates to us because God has an ability that we don't. Performance-based acceptance is a necessity. If you do good at your job, you will get attaboys. Maybe you'll get promotions or more importantly, maybe you'll get more cha-ching, right? If you do poorly at your job, you will get reprimanded. You may even become a social pariah that people don't want to work with you because they know you don't pull your own weight. So now you're experiencing these rejections from relationships and ultimately that could end with the ultimate rejection of you're fired. I didn't can't say it as good as Trump. That's real. Adam is a dear brother of mine. In fact, he's a special friend because I do believe that I was given a prophetic word about his friendship at this time in my life, which I've shared with him. And I'm just doing this to embarrass him now. And, and that happened when I was 24. And so he is a great friend of mine. If I slap him in the face and spit on him, although I've seen a lot of Jesus in Adam, I haven't seen that much Jesus in Adam. He's likely going to spit back and hit back. And it's he's right to do so. That's inappropriate boundary-breaking behavior and toxic, and he should defend himself, and I, and I perfectly understand that. If you act poorly, then the reaction from friends in society is going to be negative. That is performance-based acceptance, and it's fitting. He should, he should act that way if I decide to treat him that way. Whereas if I shake his hand, give him a hug around the neck, how's things going, blah, blah, blah. You want to go eat a spicy chicken sandwich? Well, then that performance is going to yield acceptance from him, particularly because he's a fan of the sandwich. And so, so, so we, we understand this. If you treat your spouse poorly and then quote divorce scriptures, you are being antichrist and you're not living in Christ. And because in performance-based relationships, your behavior has consequences. That needs to be. But at the same time, we need to understand that that cannot be how we think about our relationship with God. So now think for just a minute, give me just a few moments and go on this journey. Not on my journey, not even on Paul's journey, but as Paul said, let's use his example and think about our own. Performance-based acceptance happens because before we are even conscious, our brains are smart enough to figure out, if I pursue this behavior, this is the result I get. And if I pursue this behavior, this is the result I get. If I want more of the good stuff, I'm going to develop more of this behavior. And if I want more, if I want to avoid the negative stuff, I'm going to try to avoid this behavior. So what happens is this, we all grow up. And what did John Calvin say? I don't always like to quote everything about John Calvin, but there are some good things in his writings. And he, what did he say? The heart is an idol factory. He's 100% right. And how we construct those idols is based on our relationships and performance-based acceptance. And here's how it works. We grow up hearing people say affirmative, positive things about us. For a brief second, that's wonderful, and then it's exhausting because you know what? Now you've got to keep that up. Now you've got to work to keep projecting that positive image and keep fishing for those affirmations. It's why we check our... I mean, it's not complicated. It's why there's a little ding bell alert when we get likes on social media because we want that Pavlov dog response of, oh, now I have words. Someone liked something clever I said on Facebook. It, it, it drives us. So we work to do more of the things we're being affirmed about. 
Then there's another equal experience. We do negative things, things of our weakness in the flesh, and people react badly to us. They reject us. Maybe they even accuse us and speak guilt and condemnation on us. Then what we do is this. We live to disprove the negative. Have you ever followed some kind of social entrepreneur or life coach uh, success coach and they say something like thank you that all for to all the people that told me I can't I thank you you were the what I needed in order to accomplish what I've done you've seen those right think about that they're not in control of their life their detractors are they're not living for themselves out of the comfort security of their own identity I'm going to prove these people wrong and I'm going to keep behaving in a way that proves these people right so whether those relationships are positive or negative there's a string attached to your heart and they can yank that string and make you bend this way and that way does anyone remotely know what I might be talking about give me a little feedback here I know we're not Pentecostal thank you very much just making sure I wasn't the only human in the building so we perform and we pose some of us might do that in negative ways in a life of sin. We might go all the way with our rebellion, but others of us do it by trying to control the rules. But we are all engaged in the same thing. Remember, it's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember, there's a prodigal sons, one who leaves the father and one who stays with the father and is good, but neither of them understand the father's heart. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, anyone? Prodigal sons? Both are lost to the Father, and the Father loves both of them equally. But whatever is in your past that is good can be just as destructive as whatever in your past is evil if you allow that to be the thing that you build your identity upon rather than the mercy and grace found in Jesus Christ given to you freely as God wraps that robe around you, his righteousness, puts his finger on your finger and sandals on your feet and says, stop acting like a beggar. You may have, you may have behaved by that, that way, but you were never that identity. You have always been my son. You just haven't always acted accordingly. Paul has understood this dynamic. Performance-based acceptance forms the construction of our ego identity, and this is separate from our identity in Christ. God will not affirm the shame and pride that uh, the shame and pride our ego identity is attached to because they are an illusion and a lie. And Jesus came to bring us truth that would indeed set us free. God does not relate to us based on performance-based acceptance. He relates to us from the dignity of being his children that reflect his image. One more time for the back row. God does not relate to us based on performance-based acceptance. He relates to us from the dignity of being his children that reflect his image so the question becomes what is Paul modeling here how did Paul break free he break, broke free because he was interrupted with a revelation of the living Christ and it's the only way that I'm going to break free and it's the only way you're going to break free I am not talking about a revelation of Christian concepts that taught you how to articulate believing certain things about what Jesus did when he was here on earth in the past. I'm talking about 
the Holy Spirit who's been poured out on all flesh since the day of Pentecost, bringing to bear the revelation of the living Christ on your heart such that it turns your world upside down and you realize neither sin nor religion count for anything. What matters isn't my rebellion, it's not my, it's not my, and it's not my religion, it is my relationship with the living Christ that I'm encountering now. That's the gospel we are trying to disciple one another into here at Christ Community Church. That's what we're looking for. That's why we're fine to be an interdenominational. If you need doctrinal statements to help you understand your experience, I encourage that. Just don't make me have to affirm the same statements is all I ask. Because we serve, we serve the same Lord, and if he's not putting that on me, I don't think I should submit to it from you. And at the same time, even though I'm holding a microphone and I'm a pastor, you ought not submit to that from me either. No one knows you like the Spirit does. I'm saying let's create space. Let's all wander around ideologically and, and, and try to figure out how to articulate that. But our commonality is that we want to forget what's behind, strain forward what's before. And as Paul said, embrace that for which we were embraced. And that is found with daily encounters at the feet of the living Christ, just like it happened for Paul. In fact, in fact, I want you to see, in fact, I don't have it on the overhead. You can poke your little machine if you want to and bring it up. But it's so important that you not miss, this is how Paul articulates his testimony in Galatians chapter one. Look at what Galatians chapter one says. Galatians one, verses 15 and 16. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, not to me, not was, not was, was pleased to reveal a set of principles for me to affirm about the son. That's not what he says. He was saying, there was a veil on my face I didn't recognize that the image of God in me was in fact Christ in me. But there was a day that the Holy Spirit had mercy on me and even though I had an external vision of Christ, what was happening, that external is a metaphor for the reality of what took place within me. I was able to see Christ in me. When the Father was pleased to reveal Christ in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Oh man, see, this is going to have to be two parts and I've got to settle down here because I need to start landing the plane, but I just want to keep moving up with this because this answers so much of the tensions that I'm hearing in conversations around this community. The problem with evangelism is we have been taught an information-based model of evangelism that is about arguing and convincing the mind. That is not what happened to Paul. What he said, I... I was equipped to preach to the Gentiles because of the revelation of Christ in me. If you evangelize by memorizing techniques and books and classes from your mind and engage in that, especially if you're at all an introvert, you're going to hate it. Now, the extroverts, you're going to love it, but you're going to love it for all the wrong reasons. You're not gonna, it doesn't matter if people are saved. It's, you had a great time fighting with them and arguing. I understand that. I used to love that too. Anybody got saved? No, but I won the argument. Shouldn't they have been saved if you won? I guess they're just too stupid to have salvation. <laughs> but what Paul says, verse 16, to reveal his son in me 
so that I could. You cannot evangelize from here. You can only evangelize from here. If you are bringing a body of dusty doctrines to present a Jesus of 2,000 years ago, you might be interesting, probably not an effective evangelist. But if you've been transformed by an encounter of the living Christ within your own heart, and that's the place from which you share Jesus with others, you, my friend, are going to be very, very successful. You're going to cultivate deep relational connection with people. They're not just going to be people to convert. They're not just going to be numbers. They're going to be people made in God's image, and your heart's going to break because they can't see it yet. But you get to see their dignity and worth before they even can. And you, from that place, you reveal the Christ that's been revealed in you. And there is power in that. Do I want an evangelistic explosion? Absolutely I do. Do I want it to look like any of the weird stuff I was involved with in the past? No, I do not. But I am longing for an evangelism explosion in Carter County that comes from the body of Christ, having the revelation of Christ in me, the hope of glory. And I'm coming not to tell you what to do, but to make an announcement. You are not who you think you are, and he is not who you think he is. It's way better than you ever thought possible. That's good news. That's evangelism. That's what gospel means, good news. Why do we lead out with guilt, condemnation, and argument, and war metaphor? That's stupid. Let's stop doing that. That's really good psychological insight. The next time you're facing your vice, look in the mirror and say, that's stupid, stop doing that. That's my advice. That's silly, guys. Let's stop doing that. And let's evangelize from who we are, not who we are pretending to be. And there'll be power there, not just for the person, but also for you. And so my question here this morning, as we close part one of this sermon, is this. Have you encountered the living Christ? Not have you surrendered your brain to a body of ideology about Christ. That's not what I'm talking about. I am not asking, shush, Siri. I am not asking. I am not asking if you, um, if you know a lot of facts about the Jesus that lived on earth 2,000 plus years ago. I am asking if you encountered the living Christ. Maybe this morning. Maybe today. And if not today, when was the last time you were conscious of being changed by being in the presence of the living Christ? Seven-year-old camp salvation testimonies don't count as answers for this question. Are you walking contemporary with Christ? Have you encountered him? And if so, how has that encounter affected you? I will be honest with you. It created a lot of hardship for me because unfortunately, I didn't really encounter the living Christ until I had built a life of success in evangelical Christianity and a life of success in mastering certain kinds of man-made theologies. And when Christ knocked me off my donkey 
and blinded me through a study of the book of Luke, my heart was torn apart from the friendships that I lost. It was a very difficult existential time for me. And I am wired to want to make people happy. So my biggest fear is rejection from those I respect the most. And that's exactly what took place. And you know what? It set me free. I didn't know that was going to be on the other side of that experience. But it set me free. Now, I don't say that casually because if I can have those relationships back before I die, I will do what I need to do in order to see that that kind of reconciliation can happen 100%. But what I am saying is the goodness of the explosive nature of the mercy of God that comes through walking with the living Christ is too good to let go for anything. Have you encountered the living Christ? If so, how has that encounter affected you? Do you continue to live to be true to Christ? As we've shared back in February, our new mission statement is that we are so rooted, we are communities so rooted in God's love that we are changing the understanding and experience of Christianity in our generation. And our, and, our, and our mission statement attached to that is that we exist to empower people to be true to Christ, to be kind to all people, and to be the body of Christ in their community and beyond. That is what we are doing in everything that we plan here forward. All of our classes, all of our books, all our, this is our goal as a community. This is who we are. That is our distinctive identity of Christ Community Church. So we're gonna, we gotta start revisiting that more often. So let's just start with the first one. Are you true to Christ? And the way we've defined that in the documents of our mission statement is, do you know him, trust him, and obey him? It's multifaceted. It's not just one thing. Do you know him, trust him, and obey him? Do you trust him as savior? And by that, I don't mean, did you say the sinner's prayer and give up your life of sin? Although that's important too. I'm emphasizing something different here. I'm asking you, are you learning how to live from your identity in Christ so that Jesus can save you from the destructive patterns of your ego? That's what I want to know. Because there are a lot of people in churches that have all the spiritual answers and they are so emotionally broken that they're put in positions of spiritual leadership because they say the right things, but their emotional brokenness is toxic and it's hurting people within the community. We're not going to do that here. We're going to go to our broken brother and sister and not put them in positions of influence, but say, can I walk with you because I think Jesus can heal your emotional brokenness. And as that happens, you're released into ministry to lead from the healing that you've received. But we can't pretend like it's okay to be emotionally toxic while saying all the right doctrinal things. I am asking, not did Jesus save you from hell in the afterlife or your past life of sin. I'm asking, are you letting Jesus today rescue you from the schemes of your own broken ego identity that's constantly projecting a false poser self on everyone and exhausting you with the effort it takes to keep maintaining that? Are you letting Jesus set you free there? Is that where Jesus is your savior? From your own destructive, insecure, ego idolatry. This, my friends, is what we have to be rescued from. Are you trusting him as savior? Do you know him as friend? 
And if so, like, can you name what are the practices that increase your conversational friendship with him? What are the practices that empower you to become more competent in responding to your intuition? You have to do that because for us Christians, the answers are supplemented externally from our book and from our teachers and from our workshops, but they originate in here. This is what Jesus said. I'll give you my spirit. I'll pour it out. And we're going to look next week. This is the distinctive of the new covenant. And Jesus says, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water then why do we give ourselves to discipleship programs where we're trying to externally get that from fire hydrants and put it inside ourselves that's the model of religion that's not what Jesus came to bring he said no it's going to flow up from within you are you increasing in your competency of responding to your spirit directed intuition Because if you are not, another class, another book, another church meeting is not going to accomplish for you what the Spirit is trying to do in you. You've got to learn to get comfortable responding to the leading of the Spirit because others oftentimes won't understand it. So, the final one, and we'll close with this. Do you obey him as Lord? Are you increasing your skill in following the teachings of Jesus? And if there's going to be a renewal in our generation, it will be in part around this idea. Because we have created a gospel that's disconnected from the teachings of Jesus. We have fancy theological phrases for it, but at the end of the day, what gets communicated is just believe in the teachings of Jesus to be saved, not follow the teachings of Jesus to be saved. Isn't that what you were told? In fact, I was told to make a statement like that would mean that I'm becoming a legalist and I'm doing damage to the gospel. Taking my cue from Jesus here, look at what he says in that famous passage whenever Jesus when we sing songs about it there was a a wise man built his house on what? rock and a foolish man built his house on what? and both of them experienced what? and for the wise man on the rock what was the result? his house stood for the foolish man on the sand what was the result? collapsed you know both of those men could have qualified as good evangelicals they heard the teaching of Jesus they may have even affirmed the teaching of Jesus one put them into practice and one didn't now again I'm not saying that the collapsed house represents hellfire and brimstone that's we would have to go back into the theological development to talk about that so that's why that's maybe offensive I'm not talking about that I'm talking about When the storms come into our lives, what happens to us? I'm not talking about going to heaven or hell. But the difference in salvation in that respect is action. In fact, Jesus says it. In Matthew 7, verse 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Conversely, drop down to verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house 
on sand. I am not asking you to abandon theological convictions. It's great. I'm Protestant. You're Protestant. She's Protestant. Woo, we're all Protestant. Okay, I've affirmed Protestantism. But what I am saying, that doesn't matter what your religious affiliation or your doctrinal affirmation is if you're not forgiving your spouse when they've become your enemy then you're not following Jesus if you're allowing someone's lifestyle behavior to become an excuse either to condemn or withhold mercy and grace fine maybe in some structure you may be morally superior but you're not following Jesus. What matters to me is whether or not we are helping one another be true to Christ and follow Jesus. That we take his words and his teachings seriously as a guide for how we are, we are constructing our own personal philosophy of life that's going to dictate our decisions, dictate the culture of our home, and it's going to be the legacy that we pass on to our children and grandchildren. That's what I want to know. Have you encountered him? Do you know how that encounter is rearranging your understanding of yourself as you live into this new identity in Christ? Do you understand the power and security that comes from knowing God will never relate to you based on your performance, but he relates based on, the, based on the, the, his heart that was revealed in the person and work of Jesus and that he relates to us on the basis of his mercy because God is not like a man. The reason why performance-based acceptance is in the realm of man is it's necessary because we're not God but God is not like us we may reflect his image but he transcends us and he sees the end from the beginning and he sees your worth and dignity of ways that you might not yet understand that is the beauty of discipleship not getting you to say tt and do do less to stop listening to Eminem and listen to chance the rapper instead fine if you want to do all that but that's not what this is about who are you who are you and is that informed by the liberty you have in being set free from understanding the 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 divine connection that you've been given as a gift so much that it's pulling you in and you're allowing your life to be led by that connection or is your religion just another thing that you did in the realm of performance-based acceptance because the people around you affirmed you for doing it? I did that. And I liked the affirmation. But you know what? When I faced the darkness and the emptiness and the powerlessness of my ego identity that I had built, none of that affirmation helped me. But walking with the living Christ is a real event that's accessible to all of us. That is why we say here, there is nothing that the presence of Christ cannot overcome. It doesn't mean that you won't be overcome from it if you drift from the presence of Christ. But right now in this moment in Christ, I am free. What about tomorrow? I don't know. What about this afternoon? I don't know, but I've learned to not worry about that. What about the RDI I saw yesterday in his flesh yeah too bad I gotta let that guy go too but right here in this moment living Christ is present sustaining me 
and I am at liberty. And guess what? You are too. All of you who bought the lie that your addiction defines you, not seeing any addictive behaviors being engaged in right now, oh, maybe you do have a power over your addictions that you didn't think that you had. That's how this works. That's how freedom is. If I drift from my identity in Christ and go back to ego identity, I promise you my addictions, some of which I left behind decades ago, are full force with me immediately. Not smaller versions of them either. They kept growing while I neglected them. Which is why staying in Christ isn't necessary for my job security. It's the only way that I can be a whole person and have anything of value to extend out to anyone else. So, would you all stand as the worship team comes forward? If you have not encountered the living Christ in such a transformative way, would you consider that this morning may have been your personal invitation from the Father's heart to draw near? And maybe what needs to happen as you come to the Lord's table is let this be symbolic of what you are longing to pursue in Christ, which is you want to be so one with him that you actually take him inside of yourself and so he becomes part of who you are and you part of who he is. Let him fill you, encounter the living Christ. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to change you. Ask him to set you free from you, the limitations of your ego identity and to soar in the heights of what it means to be a new creation in Christ.